But why does that matter to us? Why does that matter to you? We come to church on Easter. That's usually one of the the days of the year that people make sure they're in church no matter what. Somewhere. Easter. Christmas Eve or something. But why? Why is that such a big deal? Deep down in our hearts we know that Easter isn't just about bunnies and stuff and chocolate. Because we're just compelled to come to church for some reason because it's Easter. Because Jesus rose. See the cross? It's empty. We don't have a Jesus hanging on that cross because while that was important that Jesus hung on the cross, there's no Jesus here because he is risen. But why? Why do we care so much that he rose? Everybody dies, right? Why is it so important that Jesus rose from the dead? Why is it that we celebrate more than just bunnies and stuff on Easter? Well, look in John chapter 20. We're going to read some verses here. We're going to talk about that today. Why is that so important? There's a lot of reasons why that's very important. And time does not allow for us to cover all of the reasons why Jesus rising from the dead is so important. But let's start in chapter 20 of John. Let's start in in verse 18 here. Earlier, Brother Rich read about how Mary and some other ladies went to the tomb where Jesus was laid and He wasn't there anymore. He wasn't there. And after they noticed that, they were sad. They weren't sure what had happened. And Jesus himself appeared before Mary Magdalene. And he said, go and tell the other disciples that I have risen. In verse 18, it says, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at that evening, Being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see his hands, see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came to the door, came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. And he said to Thomas, Reach your fingers here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly, Jesus did many other things, many other, many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have given your life and that you are yet still alive. 
You are there. And we can pray in your name because it means something that we pray in your name. Because you are still alive to intercede on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, for your love by which you poured out your blood for us. You are a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And you have died for sinners. Sinners who you owed nothing to. And you gave your life for us. You didn't need to. No, we deserve to give our life. But you instead reached down in love and provided a way of forgiveness that our sins might be wiped clean and that we might be just as righteous as you, not by our works, but by your work on the cross. I thank you for that. I pray that that would not get old and that we would rejoice daily in your great sacrifice for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So here in this passage, Jesus has already died. He's already died. Crucifixion happened. If you were here on the Good Friday service, thank you for showing up. And we talked about, we reflected on the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's already happened by this point in chapter 20. It happened three days prior. And all the disciples that followed him up to this point were suffering great sadness. They were confused. They weren't sure why all this had happened. And they were afraid because... People hated the Christ followers. They killed Christ. What are they going to do to his followers? So they were sad that Jesus was gone. They were confused about the things that had happened, and they were afraid of what could happen to them. And a woman, Mary Magdalene, has an encounter at the tomb of Jesus. Jesus himself appears, appeal, appears to her and tells her to go and tell everybody else that she had seen him. And now all the disciples, because of the fact that she came and told them, all the disciples knew that Jesus was no longer in the tomb. But we could discuss, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all give accounts of this resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we could go and we could look at, piece together all the different pieces that are included in all of these different Gospels. But um, the disciples, even though Mary, Mag- Mary Magdalene told them that Jesus had risen, none of them really believed, except for maybe John. Except for maybe John. But everybody was just was doubting that Jesus really rose from the dead. And it is kind of a problem that they were doubting this because Jesus had told them plainly that he would die and that he would rise again. In Mark 8, Jesus teaches the people and says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. In verse 32, it says, He spoke this word openly. He wasn't trying to hide these details from them. He was speaking very plainly to them that he was going to die and rise again. And in Matthew 20, again, he states, Now Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside to the road and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. You can't get a whole lot simpler than that. You cannot. But even as Jesus was teaching these things very plainly to the disciples as he lived, he knew that they were not going to be able to understand the teaching. Their minds simply did not have the right landscape for understanding that Jesus, their Messiah, would die before 
doing anything nationally huge, that he would die and that he would be resurrected to new life. They didn't have the proper scene in their head by which they could understand these things. It would be like explaining to somebody living in the 1300s that the United States would one day be a world superpower. United States, what's that? Hadn't even, the land hadn't even been discovered yet, let alone all the history that brought about the states and all this in how we've risen to power and all those types of things. Explaining that to somebody in the 1300s, they're not going to have a clue what you're talking about. And it was similar to these people that Jesus was, and these, to these disciples, that Jesus was trying to explain to them that he was going to die and he was going to rise again from the dead. They had no way of understanding what in the world Jesus was talking about. The disciples thought that Jesus was a man who would deliver Israel to its past national glory. That's what everybody thought that the Messiah would come to do. In fact, two of his followers said as much in Luke chapter 24, verse 21. In this scene, Jesus had already risen, and he revealed himself to a couple of the women who reported the sighting of the risen Lord to his disciples. But the disciples did not quite believe yet. And two of these Jesus followers were traveling out of Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus, to another village, and Jesus appeared in the flesh to them, even though they did not know that it was him because he hid that sight from their eyes. And uh, the, these two disciples were talking about how Jesus had just been crucified and they were confused and they were just trying to make sense of it all as they walked. And they said then in verse 21 that when Jesus had approached them and asked them what they were talking about, they explained that they were talking about Jesus dying and he said in verse 21, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. They were hoping that Jesus was going to redeem the nation of Israel. And by that they meant just the same way that Moses, it, the language in, in, uh, in uh, Genesis and Exodus, the re redeem means to bring out of slavery. So what they were talking about was they were hoping that Jesus would come and free them from Rome free them so that they could be their own power again. They were hoping that Jesus was going to redeem Israel in this sense. But then Jesus talks with them. And in verse 27 in that, in that story, he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he takes their understanding and he starts to teach it, to start to inform it properly. Because right now they just... They didn't understand things the right way so that they could understand why Jesus died. And they hadn't quite yet believed that he had risen from the dead, even though somebody told him that. Could have been just a big hoax. Maybe that happened on April Fool's Day too, I don't know. But they didn't believe it right now. They heard it, they, they had the hope, but... And even though Jesus had already taught them, plainly, that he would rise from the dead, they still didn't really believe that. They didn't really understand that. Or why any of this was happening. But it is important for us to process the ignorance of Christ's disciples because these things seem so clear to us. We have the New Testament here written in great detail of the events that were happening, but they were living it, remember? They were in the midst of this all unfolding. They were still confused and afraid. We have to understand this in light of something that Jesus said in John 14, 26. In that verse he said, But the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all the things that I said to you. So Jesus, while he's teaching his disciples, he said a great many things, not so that they could know them then, but so that in a little while they would remember the things that Jesus said 
and then it would be profound to them. Then they would learn. Then they would know the truth. But as Jesus was teaching, and as these events were unfolding, the disciples were just like deer in the headlights. They just didn't know what to do with themselves. But Jesus promised them, I, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. The Father will send the Holy Spirit to you in my name. And he's going to teach you these things that I've taught you. I've said them verbally, but the Holy Spirit will help you to really intake it, to really receive it and understand it. Because Jesus knew that they couldn't right then. But the Spirit, he calls him the helper. He calls the Holy Spirit the helper. He's going to help them be able to process these things. Because right now, they just they couldn't take it all in. They didn't understand everything that Jesus was saying. And he says again, Jesus says again in John chapter 15, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I do depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin. He will convict the world of righteousness and of judgment. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Holy Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you in all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he, he hears me, whatever he hears, he will speak. He will tell you the things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus himself said plainly to the disciples, you're not going to be able to retain all this right now. And I have a lot of things to tell you, disciples, but you're not going to be able to retain it now. But one day, you will have the Holy Spirit, and that's why it's good that I'm not going to be with you for the rest of your life. Because if I was, this helper would not come and give you the ability to process all of this. Because Jesus in the flesh was not opening their minds. The Holy Spirit would come upon them and open their minds to be able to understand these things, to understand what Jesus did, to understand the righteousness that Jesus came to bring. But right now, they couldn't process it all. And understandably so. How much of the scriptures, if you pick up this book, how much of this can you really honestly say you, you understand completely? You know, I went to Bible school to learn this, scriptures, and still, every single time I go to a page, I'm learning something new. I'm seeing something that I never saw before. Every single page, even pages that I've read time and time again, every single time I go to those pages, even, I'm still seeing something different. Still seeing something new because what? The Holy Spirit comes and he teaches us all things. He shows us the deeper things. He helps us to process what is here according to what he, the helper, knows that he needs to help us to understand. And Jesus promised this to the disciples. He said, that's why it is to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, this Holy Spirit will not come to you. He will not come to you to help you understand and process these things. But why is this all important in light of the resurrection? Why is all of these things that I'm talking about, this Holy Spirit and the, the disciples not believing in the resurrection, even though it was plainly stated in Jesus' teaching, even though Mary Magdalene came to them and told them what had happened, they still didn't believe it. We give doubting Thomas a hard time, because of his doubting, but they were all doubting. All the disciples were doubting. It wasn't just Thomas. But why is any of this understandable? Why is any of this important in light of the resurrection? Well, one, you need to understand that it is natural to reject Jesus. It's natural for the human flesh, the understanding of the brain, to reject Jesus. 
Even the disciples did not believe until Jesus himself stood before him. But until then, the disciples were just one big, nervous, faithless mess. That's why when Jesus appeared to them in John 20, what we read, he said, peace, two times in that first revelation of himself, and again in the second. He introduced himself with peace. Be at peace, people. Don't freak out. Be at peace. There's no need to stir peace. You must understand that if you are unresolved about your desire to follow Jesus, if you are unresolved about your your desire to believe in him, or to follow him, or to devote yourself to him, that's not unnatural. That's the way of the world. That's That's where everybody is naturally. Because as Jesus told us, we will understand all things not... When it, it's, it's, not when it's explained to us in a better way. That's not going to help us understand the truth and believe the truth. Just because somebody explains it better. Or because somebody explains to you all the problems of Christianity and the problem of evil and explains to you why bad things happen to good people and gives you the right answers. And then you've read 250 books explaining the mysteries of how God created the world and all the, thing, all the implications therein, and then you come to a perfect understanding of how it all fits together. That's not how God tells us that we will gain understanding and belief. That's, not how, that's how most of us go about doing it. And truly, this would be necessary if you wanted to do your due diligence in any other system of thought that the world has to offer. There's lots of things that people have said and have tried to substantiate with thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of writing. But here we see Jesus promising understanding, not after the disciples go to school for a while, no, but when the Holy Spirit comes. That's when they will see with their mind's eye that these things are true. When the Holy Spirit comes. The one way to have our eyes open so that we may see the truth of Christ's divine life, death, and resurrection is through the Holy Spirit. The second reason why this is so important is that we must understand that if we are to come to Jesus, therefore, since it is natural for us to reject him, if we are to come to him, he must first come to us. He must first come to you and me. John, in John 20, here in verses 19 through 22, this is Jesus revealing himself to the disciples. The disciples did not believe. When? But when did, when did they believe that Jesus was indeed risen from the dead? When Jesus stood before them. <laughs> when he came before them and said, Peace, peace be to you. As the Father sent me, okay? As the Father sent me. That's, the, that's when they could really believe, is when Jesus comes to you. And what did he say about the Holy Spirit? When the Holy Spirit comes to you, you will understand everything that I've taught you. No, God has to come to you. Most of our life is spent trying to come to God, trying to come to please God. And it's all just in vain. We are to seek God. We are to follow after him in, his, in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, but... The one thing that gives us the vitality of the Spirit, 
by which we can follow Jesus Christ is one, that Jesus came to us. The Holy Spirit comes to us who put our faith in Jesus Christ so that we can then follow Jesus in a manner that actually is worth something. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can do all the right things in the world, but without faith, it's impossible for any of those things to believe God because those who will come to God and work before Him must, must come in rest, resting in Jesus Christ, knowing that in Christ they are already righteous. I'm not doing these things so that I may become righteous. I'm already righteous in Jesus Christ. Already righteous. If I'm doing all these things, if I'm formatting my life in such a way so as to obtain righteousness before God, so that he'll be pleased with me, then we run our race in vain because Christ, Christ already did that. That's already in the past. He already gave a way that we could be righteous. Faith in Jesus Christ. Then after that, after we've put our faith in Jesus Christ and we're confident in the fact that our life doesn't have to be spent trying to please God who is already pleased with us in Christ, now we have the power, the energy, the confidence by which to go forth and live the Christ life in the power that Christ gives us through the Holy Spirit. Not being held back by past sins that have already been forgiven, but in freedom to go forward in confidence in the power of Christ. All of this is made possible through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see clearly in this passage that the disciples, when Jesus approached them after his resurrection, that the disciples were not busying themselves in some synagogue learning or in the temple worshiping. They were actually huddled in a room hiding for their lives. They were afraid to death. Because they just because the rulers, the religious rulers just killed Jesus. What are they going to do to his disciples? They were huddled in a room afraid for their lives. And that's when Jesus came to them. Jesus came to these disciples and substantiated the claims that were said about him, that he had risen from the dead. And he himself delivered to them the Holy Spirit. You can see that in, um, in verse 22 of chapter 20 in John. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. He came to them and he gave them the Holy Spirit. And this only after the resurrection. He could have done that while he was alive. Perhaps. But he didn't. He did this after the resurrection. After he died already. He didn't do it while he was teaching. He gave them the foundation so that later, when they were given the Holy Spirit, they could look back and see the truth, the beauty, the, the deep package of wonder that Jesus had given them in his teachings in life. And then they could take that to the world. And it was only after the resurrection that Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to his people. And I, was, I must repeat what Jesus said in John 15. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. The Holy Spirit simply was not going to come unless Jesus rose and ascended. We would have no means of, in truth, discerning the meaning of Scripture. We would have to just try to use the wisdom of man to discern the things of God. 
And that's a recipe for disaster. That's, that's where all sorts of falsehood comes from. When we try to apply the wisdom of man to the wisdom of God. No. But in the spirit, we have the ability to discern what? The wisdom of God itself. Without the use of the wisdom of man. To try to discern these things. And it's the Holy Spirit that does the job of purifying us. Titus chapter 3 tells us, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by the works which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He says here that we're not purified by the works of righteousness that we have done, the things that we try to do to make ourselves feel better about how bad we feel about ourselves, (laughs) how empty we feel. We try to fill that up with good things that we can look at as trophies. But he says, no, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of what? the regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And we must see this. The washing happens when the Holy Spirit, through His power, comes upon us, regenerates us, and renews us. The regeneration means He brings you to life. He brings you to life. Something that is dead inside of us. Dead in the darkness of sin. When He removes that sin, now we come to life in our souls. And he renews our life. This is something that is progressive. That's something that we're always growing. We're always learning. There's always something to overcome in the flesh. But the Spirit gives us the renewal at that point of faith and salvation. He renews us and gives us the ability to actually become sanctified. And he says, whom whom, the Holy Spirit, he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died. He rose again. And now now Jesus sends us the Holy Spirit from on high. So that having been justified by His grace in the past, now that we are, now we are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And the Holy Spirit gives us this. It is the Holy Spirit that Christ sends to us when we put our faith in Christ so that He might sprinkle us clean with the blood of Christ, which was shed to atone for our sins. Your sacrifices do not atone for your sins. Jesus' sacrifice atoned once and for all for your sins and makes us clean, clean creations that have been purified of all of our sins, which is performed by the active power of the Holy Spirit that Christ sends to us. And if Christ had not risen, there would be no work of the Holy Spirit that would regenerate us and renew us, making us righteous. We would have no hope unless Christ had risen we would remain in our unrighteous, condemned state. 2 Corinthians 1 states, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us in God, who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The Bible here calls the Holy Spirit a guarantee. A guarantee is, in this sense, is something like a collateral. It's a token that that somebody will fulfill their promise to you. And once that promise is fulfilled, they would receive back that token or that guarantee. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, not only does the Holy Spirit make us new creations, but he also, the Holy Spirit is given to us as a token 
or a guarantee that God will look upon you with saving favor. When you have the Holy Spirit given to you, the Lord will not reject himself. And if the Holy Spirit is upon you, you cannot be rejected. For you are brought into the oneness of the love of God, where the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit all participate in one unity. And we are brought into that unity, and we can thereby no more be rejected. The sin is gone, and we have been received in to the oneness of God. The unity that he enjoys within himself, and we will by no means be cast out. It is no longer possible because the Holy Spirit has been given to us and the, Lord, and the Lord will not reject him, will not cast out himself. So that because of Christ's resurrection, we can be sure that by God's grace through faith, we will receive the inheritance of the sons of God and reign with Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. It is done, it is finished, it is set because the Holy Spirit was sent to you The third thing that we need to understand in light of the sending of the Holy Spirit through the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that Christ is compassionate towards us in our weakness, even when it comes to our unbelief. Do you not believe? Christ still has compassion to you. Look at John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples said to him, We have seen the Lord! So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace be to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach inside your, <clears throat> and reach your hand in here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know, Jesus could have just rejected Thomas. Thomas said, No, I'm not going to believe unless I see Jesus. But Jesus could have said, Fine, see you, Thomas. I'm done with you. Is that what Jesus did? No, Jesus came to Thomas and said, See, look, I'm real. It's true. All these stories that you heard are true. And then Thomas believed. He accommodated Thomas because Thomas was weak, was he not? We don't like to think of God being an accommodating God because we don't like to accommodate other people in their weaknesses. You know, they need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. But here we find God accommodating Thomas. Why? Because God remembers our frame. He knows that we are dust. He knows that apart from him, we have no power to truly believe. Many of you sitting here claim that you believe, and you don't even remember a time in your life when you didn't believe. And there are many reasons why we say we believe. Many of those reasons are weak reasons. Some of us don't really believe, even though we say we do. Some of us 
are brainwashed into believing Jesus. By that I mean, we claim it, but it's not real. We claim it to be true, but it's not a real belief. We claim it for whatever reason. Our family believes it, and it's just easier for me to believe it and follow in this ethical system that my family has set forth. Because if I don't, I'm just going to be rejected. Life's going to be harder. So I'll believe in Jesus, sure. But you've never really come into a personal introduction of Jesus Christ. Spiritually speaking, you've never stuck your finger into the holes in his hands. Or the hole in his side. Jesus is compassionate to you. Maybe you're sitting here and you struggle with belief. And I tell you, that's good. I'm glad you struggle with your belief. Because that means when you do actually come to believe, it'll be real. It'll be real. Each one of us should struggle at times. Because the Lord made us conquerors, but if there's nothing to conquer, well then there must not be any substance here. If there's no temptation towards disbelief, what good is it then that you believed? There's no overcoming in that sense. Nothing had to be destroyed. The sin probably still remains. But if you are having a hard time with faith, good for you. Good for you. Because that means you're looking at this realistically. I mean, just think about it. Somebody rose from the dead. That's, that should be kind of hard to believe. Because that doesn't happen. That just doesn't happen. We don't see that. It should be hard to believe that. And if it's always been easy for us to believe that, we've never had a time in our life where it's like, wait a second, did that really happen? Well, maybe we've just been brainwashed into believing this stuff, and it's not really genuine. We should all have a problem with faith at some point, because it's not natural. And we do live in this natural world. There should be some push and tug on our faith. Should be there. So I want, you, I want to encourage you that Christ is compassionate to your unbelief because he understands it. He understands that this stuff is, it's, it's out of this world. <laughs> it's not natural for this stuff to believe. Thomas was a little, Thomas even took it to the next step. You can see Thomas, Thomas responded to this in a different manner than the other disciples did. He said, he said to the disciples, no. I'm not going to believe this unless I stick my finger in his hands. I'm not going to do it. I refuse to believe. That's something the other disciples did not say, but Thomas boldly declared his lack of faith. I'm not going to believe this unless he proves it to me according to my standard. He has to, he has to convince me according to my standard. And you know, that's another thing we... We reject other people by, no, I'm not going to accommodate you in your desires. But Jesus still does, right? Again, because he understands our weaknesses. He understands how hard it is to believe. And he loves you. And he wants you to believe. And he will reveal himself to you so that you might believe. That doesn't mean you have to believe. And here, Thomas does believe. He says, my Lord and my God. And 
And I don't want you to miss this, okay? Because there is no man or woman alive who has ever been saved apart from a personal introduction of Jesus Christ. This is a miracle. Salvation is a miracle. It's not something that you get to just because you engaged in a dialogue with somebody. That's not how people get saved. It's not just because we read a prayer on the back of a gospel tract and we said some words. No, salvation is a miracle. Cleansing of the soul, that's a miracle. That's not something that you can do. You can't even stop your own heartbeat with your mind, let alone cleanse your heart from sin with your mind. It's not how it works. No, this is a miracle given to you by God. There is no man or woman alive who has ever been saved apart from the personal miraculous introduction to Jesus Christ. In this day and age, it doesn't happen like it did with Thomas. It happens more spiritually speaking. And in John chapter 20, verse 31, at the, end, the very last verse of this chapter, John himself says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John tells us his whole purpose for writing this book of John is he's trying to introduce you to Jesus. He's trying to show you the historical Jesus that lived and walked, died and rose. He's telling you the events. He's telling you the story. So that you may believe. He's introducing you to Jesus. With words. But the words will not save you. Christ must come to you and you must welcome him. His introduction. It's not that John, through his own wisdom or fluency of speech, made this introduction, but through this revelation of the book of John, you might be saved. According to the forgiveness that is to be had in Jesus Christ. And the last thing I want to talk to you about is that since Christ is compassionate with us in our weaknesses, we can take comfort knowing that the one who shows you and me compassion is the one whose compassion actually has the means and power to save and strengthen us. How many of you have shown compassion to somebody but couldn't do anything about it? Maybe you saw a homeless man and you wanted to give him five bucks, but you didn't have five bucks. You know? Or had a family member who just had this great need, but it was so great that you all you could really do was pray for them, which is great. But you couldn't fix their need. You couldn't fix it. You felt bad for them. You had compassion towards them, but you couldn't do anything about it. But that's not how Jesus is. Jesus, through his compassion, he actually has the means by which he can intercede on us, on our behalf. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, tells us that because Christ conquered sin and death, he, through his resurrection obtained all authority over all things in heaven and earth. Everything in heaven and earth are, his, are at his disposal. All things are under his sovereign rule. Is something happening on earth? Well, it's under his sovereign rule. Do you have a need? Well, all things are at Christ's disposal. Does it have to come from something outside of this earth? Well, he has all authority in heaven too. Through his resurrection and conquering sin... Death and hell. Christ obtained authority over everything everywhere. Everything's at his disposal. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11 tells us a similar story. I'm not going to read through all these verses for time's sake. It tells us that through Christ, he humbled himself. 
He emptied himself of his power, his glory, his majesty, so that he could offer himself up on our behalf as a blood sacrifice. He has thereby obtained eternal sovereignty, Philippians, the book of Philippians tells us. It says every knee will bow to him one day. Every single person will kneel before him. Why? Because he is the sovereign, whether you like it or not. Whether you want to believe it or not, he is the sovereign, and every knee will bow. All pride will be humbled. Now, all these things can give us confidence in Christ, knowing that Christ, who loves you, every single one of you, with an undying love, actually has the power to love on you. <laughs> To show it. He showed it by dying in our place. We deserve to die for our sins, but He did it for us. And Christ will go to such lengths to save us by offering up His own life on the cross to set us apart for a kingdom and for His glory. This Christ will only do good for those whom He loves and welcomes into His family. If He's going to give Himself to be killed for you, don't you think that everything else that follows is for your good too? Don't you think? For your good and his glory. He's a God who is glorified through your good. I mean, that's what salvation looks like. You can have your sins wiped out so that then you can live to his glory. God is glorified through your good. And because he rose from the dead, he actually has the means to carry all of this out. All of it. How is it that a Christ like this, a Christ who has all of heaven and earth at his disposal, could for one second be too weak to save you or provide for you? How could that be? A Christ that we've learned about, who has all authority in heaven and earth, how could he be too weak to save you or to serve you in some area of your life? How could he be too weak for that? He has everything at his disposal. How could he be defeated by a particular sin in your life that you are ashamed of. God could never forgive me. Look at me. Look at my mess. How could a God who has all authority over everything everywhere be too weak to save you? Don't give yourself that much credit. Humble yourself before God and understand that he will save you. Nothing can stand in his way. It is not Christ who can fail. No, we can, but he can't. In Romans, I want to end with this passage, Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read some verses to you, but this is perhaps one of the most encouraging passages that I've ever run across in Scripture. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If you're flipping, this is Romans 8. I just read verse 31. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? No, it is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God. Who makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution... Famine, nakedness, peril, the sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither life, 
nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. People, if God justifies you, then you are justified. Nothing will condemn you. In his resurrection, he justified all who come to him in faith. In faith. In his resurrection, he stands to intercede for us so that when Satan does come to us to try to accuse us, Jesus jumps in and says, no, their debt is paid. They owe me nothing else. There's nothing that they, that they owe me. Satan will accuse you to yourself too. Satan will accuse you to yourself to try to make you feel defeated that God doesn't love me. Look at me. Look at the sin that I just committed yesterday. Ugh. Same sin over and over and over again. Can't seem to get it over. Get over it. But no, it is God who justifies. And it is God who renews. And that, all because Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus rose. He is risen. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today, not just yesterday, not back in the Bible days, today. He's real. He's real. Have you met with him? Have you met him? Or do you just believe some facts that you read in a story? Has he come to you? If not, pray that he will. That's a prayer that I don't think he's going to reject. There are some prayers that we feel like God doesn't answer, and that's another sermon, but... If you'll pray that Jesus will come to you and give you faith, he's not going to turn that away. In fact, you can't even ask for that without a bit of faith that God has already given you. Why would you pray to a God that doesn't exist? So if you're even praying that or longing for that, it's because the Lord has given you a taste of faith. A longing, a desire. That's from God. That's not from you. It's not from me. That's from God. Because he's risen, he's alive. He's interceding, he's communicating with you, and he will reveal himself to you because he's alive, because he rose. So let us rejoice together in the resurrection of Jesus, through which resurrection he has given us the Spirit to wash us, to make us clean, to justify us, and to empower us for this life ahead of us, through the life of Christ that he left for us to learn and now we can understand it because Christ rose and sent us the helper to help us in all things. If you have questions about this, if you need guidance, if you would like to be saved, if, if Christ is giving you faith and you want to come to him, please talk with me. Let me know. I'd be happy to help. But not because my help is worth anything, but because the Holy Spirit is here to help you understand. I can declare to you the words here, but the Holy Spirit will declare to you the truth of it. So let's look to Him for guidance. Because without His guidance, without His miracle within us, we are nothing. These words are nothing. They fall to the ground. But the words of God, as He gives them to us, they remain forever. So let's seek those. Lord, I thank you that you stand with strength and power.
you have the power to save. Because Christ has finished the work. He's already he's atoned for our sins. There's no more sacrifice left to be made for our sins. Nothing. Nothing has to be done to get your grace. The Lord has Lord Jesus has obtained that for us. And I thank you for that, that we are now free indeed to walk in the truth that you have established for us. May your spirit come upon us to teach us the truth of these things according to your word, that we may take confidence, bold confidence, to walk before you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for this blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.